Hi, everybody. Shmuel Shoham for the Transplant ID podcast. Today's guest is Gotti Heider. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yep. And he is Director of Research for the Bone Marrow Transplant and Hematological Malignancy Infectious Disease Program at University of Pittsburgh and is also the uh, Program Director for the Transplant ID Fellowship Program at that same institution. He's truly one of the rising stars in infectious diseases as it relates to transplant and oncology infectious disease. And as I was looking at his education background, I was stunned that it was only, I think, 2017 that he graduated fellowship. Yeah, that's, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so uh, a huge amount of work done in fellowship and afterwards, in the five years afterwards. And so I guess I'll start by uh, telling us a little bit about your journey to transplant infectious disease. So the journey began actually as I was interviewing for fellowship. So it was at some point during, so let me take a step back. My first interest in ID really emerged in med school when we were rounding with, with an ID physician who began to talk to us a lot about anti-antibiotics. And I really appreciated the translation from the basic microbiology stuff that we were learning in the first two years of med school into the more practical things that we were seeing. And so I, I think I still have this notebook today with all sorts of different anti antibiotics and their and their spectra and what ESBLs were and things like that. So I thought that was also really cool. And that interest persisted in residency when initially actually my debate was whether to do ID or uh, or a critical care. Mm -hmm. But throughout residency, I just noticed that I just kept gravitating towards ID things and was just really interested in multi-drug resistant gram-negative bacteria. And there was one case really that I saw in the beginning of my third year of residency in the ICU, which was a patient with advanced HIV and CNS lymphoma who uh, had been on the cancer ward and then was admitted to the ICU with sepsis. And overnight, right, right before my eyes, evolved from sepsis to shock to multi-organ dysfunction. And this person had no known colonization or infection with anything, really. Mm -hmm. And he got piptazo, as one does. And then throughout the course of the night, just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then I went home for the morning after after the ship. During the daytime, my co-residents gave him some Cipro for some dual coverage. He ended up dying a few hours later. And after the fact, the organism was speciated as a extensively drug-resistant ESBL-producing strain of E. coli that was resistant to everything except the, except the carbapenems. Mm. And this problem really cemented my interest in immunocompromised hosts and in multidrug resistant uh, organisms with the thought of, well, how can we do better for patients like this? Um, and it wasn't until interviewing for a fellowship that I really became aware of transplant ID itself as, as a subfield. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then throughout the end of my residency, and so I, I really ranked QPMC as my number one fellowship option for two reasons. One, because I was aware of their strengths in gram-negative resistance, and two, because they're a big transplants center 
And actually, after I matched there, I contacted the PD and asked to do a bit more weeks of transplant ID in my first year than what would usually be given to a first year fellow, just to really make sure that I liked it. And I did. And so that's how I got involved in TID here after just doing all the rotations we do in our first year that proved that this is what I, what I, what I wanted to do. I ended up spending the second year of my fellowship, which was my research year, doing a lot of basic science stuff specifically with, with the gram negative resistance and then did a third year of TID fellowship and continued some gram, some gram negative work and then uh, stayed on as faculty. So that's, that was the journey. Wow. Wow. And, and, and through this journey, you've had a chance to work with some legendary people. Uh, a quick PubMed search of you will always end up with Nina Singh is somehow involved. Tell us a little bit about her impact on your work. Yeah, I, I cannot overstate her impact on my work. Actually, I first became aware of her around the time I was interviewing um, and after I matched. And when I started to look into who I might want to work with when I would start fellowship. And at the time, I, I contacted my PDs at the time who gave me her name and also the names of Hong Wen and Neil Clancy. And I've worked with the three of them a lot since mm -hmm. since then. With Nina Singh, I remember as a third-year resident reading one of her papers called How I Treat Cryptococcosis and SOT Recipients and thinking, huh, well, that's crazy that someone could be so prominent in this field that they would write a paper with with that title. And I, I actually met her in the summer of my first year of fellowship. So that that July, that was actually the first month I met Dr. Clancy too, because we were on service together at the VA. And she actually at the end of the rotation gave me a signed copy of a of a, a transplant ID book that she had written. Actually, I have the book right here. It's called Transplant Infections. And she wrote to me that at Wadadi, best wishes for a brilliant career in transplant ID. Nina Singh said, dated July 20, 2014. And since then, she and I have kept a close touch. And she invited me to write a lot of papers with her. And I really am forever grateful for the opportunities that she uh, provided me. I cannot overstate this. No, that, that's fantastic. And it, it really is uh, speaks to the huge role of a mentor and, and mentors in, I think in medicine in general, but in our field in particular, because it's such a uh, small niche field that really requires people to uh, bring you along and to teach you. And, and I see that you're now doing the same thing to the next generation, which is tremendous. And you're also one of the group of people that it's become increasingly uh, accepted now, but it is a new thing for people in our field to have NIH grants to bring the uh, the scientific heft. Of course, there's always been people with NIH grants that have done transplant infectious disease, but to have people that that is their main focus and are funded through NIH grants, that's a relatively new thing. Yeah, no, I am with you on that. And I think that there's a contingent of a sort of a, at my level kind of early mid-careerish who are focused in TID but also have NIH funding with various CDAs and that I mean with with Nina and then working with Hong and Neil in my research fellowship it became clear to me then that I want to be a researcher in the field of transplant ID plus or minus gram negative resistance 
And so throughout fellowship, we were sort of working towards the ultimate goal of ultimately applying for a K award in the field of transplant ID, which is what my K is on. It's on lung transplant and liver transplant recipients with multi-drug resistant organisms. And then so, I mean, I, I think that if someone is truly interested in, in having research be a major part of their, of their career, I would highly recommend that they pursue a CDA of sorts, be it through NIH, VA, or some other organization, because the amount of protected time that these awards give you to build yourself up as a researcher, I don't think you can get that from anywhere else. And like you just said, I think there's a lot of interest in supporting research specifically in the transplant population. And CDA stands for... Uh, career Development Award. Sorry. Career Development Award. That, that's what I, I, I thought, but I also I wanted to make sure it wasn't something having to do with banking. Uh, <laughs> so and, and so tell us about this this grant and what you're uh, setting out to do. Yeah, so like I said, my first interest in, in immunocompromised hosts and, and infections was really in, in gram-negative resistance, and I got my feet wet there in, in fellowship, both taking care of these patients clinically and then evaluating a lot of the new drugs that were coming out around the time of my research fellowship year, so circa 2015 and 2016 or so. And uh, specifically, I'm talking about drugs like cefcazidine, avibactam, and avipenabrelobactam, and plasomycin. And so throughout my fellowship, I saw this, and, and septolazine, tazobactam. And so throughout my fellowship, I saw this rapid evolution of how we were treating CRE. So we went from aminoglycoside monotherapy or these weird cocktails of an aminoglycoside plus meropenem and things like that to just septaz AV and also a similar concept for multidrug resistant pseudomonas. And so I just got a lot of hands on work in the lab looking at the activity of these drugs against the pathogens that we were using them for, doing some whole genome sequencing, trying to characterize the emergence of resistance. We found a, a cool thing whereby we've observed this phenomenon where ceftazidime, apibactam resistant CRE were in the clinical lab testing as though they were ESBLs. And when we ended up characterizing this in the lab, we actually proved that, yes, these mutated KPCs that confer resistance to ceftaz AV change the way they fold in such a way that they now do have an ESBL phenotype again. And that was cool. So, I mean, I did a bunch of things like that in, in my in my research years, and then it became, all right, so clearly the problem of resistance hasn't completely gone and it's never going to go away. And how else can we approach this with an ultimate goal to, to try to optimize the care of these patients? And that's how I kind of, in my first years as junior faculty became a bit interested in the microbiome and how that might define our risk of infection and uh, things like that. So when working with a lot of microbiome people at, at our center, and specifically Dr. Allison Morris, who is the division chief of pulmonary and also the head of our microbiome center, we looked at some samples from SOT recipients with and without multi-drug resistant organisms, did some stool sequencing to look at their microbiome. That kind of generated the idea for the NIH grant, which is essentially to try to characterize the microbiota of lung transplant or liver transplant recipients 
who go on to develop infections with these multi-drug resistant organisms. And we picked these two populations because we had some data showing that they were at the highest risk of, of acquiring multi-drug resistant organisms. So that's been a very rewarding project. I've learned a lot about how to implement work like this through this project. There's a lot of, I mean, the science is great, but I think a lot of clinical research is about how to do it. And so things like figuring out how to keep track of the repository and best ways to consent patients and best ways to approach patients and to remind people to collect stool samples and things like that. So that all has kind of been fun to, to try to learn over these past two uh, years or so. And then since then, been trying to address the MDRO problem in a bit of a some innovative ways, for example, with bacteriophage therapy. And we're also collecting biosamples from immunocompromised patients who we've treated with phages to just try to understand how, how the phages work, how they affect the microbiome and things like that. So there's kind of all these cool little side projects that can emerge from, from an NIH grant, and then that can lead to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's it's amazing. And in reviewing some of the stuff that you've done, there is one thing that uh, caught my attention, but I'm not sure what it is, which is metagenomic approaches for the diagnosis of infection and immunocompromised host. What does that mean for me? Yeah, yeah. So so that's sort of this other thing that emerged as as a natural extension of the uh, K award. So so it's about using these unbiased sequencing approaches to try to diagnose infections in immunodeficient hosts. So at this point, if you have a lung transplant patient, let's say, who's having a fever or, or some nodules, the typical way is you send some blood cultures, you might send some various antigens for fungi, a galactamina, a crypto, and things like that. You might bronch them and send for whatever panel your hospital allows you to, to send. And it's all kind of hypothesis-driven, meaning that I'm going to send XYZ because I'm thinking of XYZ, but what if I forgot about diagnosis A, that I'm not going to send the thing for A and I'm never going to diagnose it. And, and so we collaborated with a diagnostics company called Carius to try to look at the performance of their test in freshly transplanted lung transplant recipients. And what their test does, you can think of it as kind of like a liquid biopsy. It's essentially a metagenomics approach for diagnosis of infections from plasma. So it essentially, it just sequences everything that mm -hmm. can be detected in the plasma. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually just completed enrollment for that earlier this month. And we've seen some data come out. It's really cool stuff. And I'm excited to hopefully share that at some point in 2023. Ultimately, I think we can do better when it comes to how we diagnose infections in um, patients like this. I do think we need to generate more and more data of these of these new approaches, because I think we're all very comfortable with the performance of things like galactamin and, and cryptoantigen and things like that. And none of us really have that much experience experience with these new approaches, but I do think that that they're that they're the future. So TBD. Okay. Well well now that you that you mentioned what the metagenomic is that, that the carriest test, then uh it makes a ton more sense to me. And in the interest of full disclosure, I do serve as a uh, consultant to them on some of the clinical aspects of use of carriers and I will definitely be looking for your data to make my consulting uh, more effective. I do agree with you that diagnostics are a huge problem in infectious disease. I, I think that 
We're very lucky in that for many of our pathogens, our antibiotics are very forgiving, but, but not for all of them. And I've recently become aware that toxoplasmosis is a much bigger problem than I thought it was. And definitely uh, zosin and vancomycin are not going to cover toxoplasmosis. And there's so many other uh, organisms as well that our diagnostic tests are just not that good at. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it was nice to just be able to use the same cohort of patients I have for my K grant and then just collect a few more samples from them. They're already being consented for my repositories and then just bank those samples and do some meta metagenomic testing. So, so it's cool. I also have a full a disclosure, which is that I also, in addition to the research I'm doing with Carrier serve as a consultant for them. That's, so good. So they're, they're getting good consultations. Yeah, no, I think they really are. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit. So you have a role in terms of the fellowship program. Uh, so tell me about your views as to how we can best develop the future pipeline of people in our field. Yeah. So I got involved in fellowship actually as soon as I joined faculty in 2017. And that was more so in the general ID aspect. I, I was part of the core fellowship leadership as an associate PD. I think about one or two years later, I forget the exact year, they sort of handed me the transplant ID fellowship. I've since moved away from the associate PD for the for the for the general fellowship. And so now I've I've been the TID PD for maybe three years, years, something like that. And that also has been a rewarding experience. And as someone who did felt TID fellowship in this program, I mean I appreciated that they gave me that that role. And I mean, I think I've done okay there. We and we've done. I mean, we've actually made a lot of changes to the structure of our fellowship since since I joined. So, for, so for example, and this is all based on feedback from TID fellows over the past few years. We at this point have this transplant ID boot camp with <laughs> these core TID specific lectures that we give to the TID to the TID fellows which we didn't really have prior. So it's kind of this intensive weekly thing that starts in the summer and ends in the early fall where you go over all of this stuff. So basics of, of organ transplantation, basics of, of immunosuppression, same thing for BMT, and then all the relevant pathogens and vaccines and things like that that you might encounter after SOT. There's kind of a weekly lecture there specifically geared towards the TID fellows. Mm-hmm. Obviously, all our fellows can 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 join, but they're they're a bit advanced, so they kind of assume that you know ID before you delve before you delve into that. And it's always just it's very rewarding to get to know the TID fellows and see how everyone's a bit different and to see them pick a research project. I tend to try to guide them and point them into specific directions based on their interests, connect them with specific mentors to find something doable that they can complete in one year because our TID fellowship itself is just a year is is just a year long fellowship. So yeah, I mean, it's it has been really fun. I think that the key thing is, again, mentorship. These are trainees who are either our own fellows who remain as TID fellows, and they just kind of want to learn from us or people who are coming from another institution and specifically to gain experience at a different place and want to learn from us. And so I think that mentorship is key. We have a lot of renowned TID faculty in our division. So so it's always nice to see the fellows either work with them clinically or to do research projects with them. And then it's it's been really nice to get feedback from our graduating TID fellows, especially since I've 
I've taken over saying that they felt that our training has really prepared them to become independent independent providers in the places that they end up, be it, be it here or elsewhere. And it's also always really nice to get a text from them for a ask a friend question if there's mm -hmm. uh, a uh, clinical question. So actually just heard from one of our fellows last last week about something. So that's that's always nice when, when that happens. Nice, nice. And, and Pittsburgh is such a great town. So I'm sure it's not super hard to recruit people. I mean, it's it, it, if you compare it to say, you know, San Diego, then that, that's always going to be a tough sale because there's no surfing in Pittsburgh. But it's such a great town these days. Yeah, no, I love Pittsburgh. It, it was really, I mean, I've been here for eight years now. I probably, as good as a program is, I think that a city is also important. I don't know if I would have stayed here had it not been for a combination of both an excellent program and an excellent place to live as well. It's funny that you should say San uh, San San Diego because our current T TID fellow actually completed her ID fellowship in San Diego and is now here anyway. Much more affordable. Pittsburgh is much more affordable. Yes, that is true. In terms of the future of our field, I think it's, it's exceptionally bright. One of the things that we're seeing, though, is that there's a huge clinical need right now. And I know that programs all over the country are recruiting people to do transplant ID with specific direction that they want them to see patients. And so it, it's good having competition for uh, people in it that hopefully it will drive salaries up and work circumstances up because it's a buyer's market, but it's also a challenge for um, people that are already established to get more help. Have you seen that in your neck of the woods? Yeah, we, I mean, on, on the clinical services. So I, I think in the past few years, I have noticed a sort of explosion in interest in transplant ID. And, and I've also just noticed that kind of the, the clinical services, at least at, at our end, are becoming kind of bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's always a, a need for more people like you said. So for example, historically, we've, we typically had just one, one inpatient service for abdominal organ transplants, one inpatient service for cardiothoracic organ, organ transplants plus LVADs. Over the past four or five years, we've expanded to hematological cancers, BMT and CAR-T, which now blossomed as a service to an extent that we have two services for that. So we have four inpatient rounding, rounding services. And you, you can imagine that with that comes a need for qualified people who are able to take care of this wide range of immunocompromising conditions. And actually, as a part of our fellowship, we do train our trainees in both organ transplants and heme cancer as well. And with this comes three separate out outpatient clinics and things like that. And so, yeah, there's a huge need, I think, for TID trained people, not just here, but also elsewhere. And I do appreciate when I get emails from colleagues asking if we have any trainees that are interested in in interviewing at their organizations, my sense is that everyone is kind of in the same boat. We all want TID trained doctors to round and see patients at our at our hospitals. I think that we can also probably make it easier to access TID training. So I think traditionally at UPMC, it was always an extra third year of fellowship. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that's some people don't want to do three, three, three full years of fellowship. Over the past five or six years, it's actually changed where we do still have that option of the third year of 
a fellowship, but we also have an option where in year two, so in the usual two-year program, year two can be filled with enough inpatient and outpatient TID rotations that by the end of it, the fellow will get a uh, certificate for transplant ID, same certificate that the third-year fellow typically gets. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact same training, you just, instead of having that, you just do it in year two as opposed to year three. And there's various reasons that a fellow may, might want to do that. And actually, essentially every year we've had someone do the TID track and then go on and take on a full-time TID fellowship position. Mm-hmm. And, and I think more places can probably think about doing something like that. I think that model is appealing to uh, trainees. No, I agree. I agree. I, and I think that three years of fellowship is necessary for a lot of things, but it, it's a big cost. It's a big commitment in terms of, of earnings in that spending a year when you're young and earning a fellow salary as opposed to an attending salary, and then not being able to pay off debt or not putting it, being able to put money in your 401k, that can have uh, millions of dollars of lifetime implications. And for me, that was worth it. But if there's a more efficient way that's more respectful of people's long-term goals and financial situation, I think it should be put in place. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think that people appreciate the uh, flexibility there. And again, there's, I think, reasons that people want to do one or the other. So for me, for example, I had some visa stuff. And so it made more sense for me to do a third year. And plus, I wanted to do research. And so I filled my second year with basic science. But mm-hmm. that model did not work for everyone. And so hence hence the flexibility that we can that we can provide. So this would be Oh, in addition to the required three years of TID that the fellows do in their first year, you would end up doing a bunch more rotations in year two, for example. Got it. So you mentioned visa. So you trained in the Middle East, and I'm assuming you still have connections there. What is going on with gram negatives in uh, Middle Eastern countries? So, yeah, I think in the Middle East, they see a different flavor of MDROs than we see here. So... Gram-negative resistance is very geographically diverse. In Pittsburgh, for example, we see primarily, I'm talking now just about the CREs, we see primarily uh, KPC producers. We hardly see any metallo-beta-beta-lactamases. And our pseudomonas isolates are typically multidrug resistant because of Eflex bumps and AMC and things like that. We almost never see any carbapenemases in our pseudomonas isolates. I'm aware of only one carbapenemase producing, I think it was even a metallo-beta-lactamase producing isolate of pseudomonas that was from a lung transplant recipient who flew in from Kuwait mm-hmm. and so came from outside. And so I think that there's a CRE problem in in the in the Middle East, at least, and I know this you know, to be the case in Lebanon, which is where I went to med school. I think there's also a lot more NDMs than we see here in Pittsburgh. In talking to some of my um, med school professors there, I, one of the problems is that I think access to a lot of these novel agents is very limited. So I don't know if there's access to ceftazidime, antibactam, and meropenem favorbactam and things like that. So I think that, and I, I could be wrong here, and if I am, please someone correct, but the last I checked, it was the traditional agents like colistin and aminoglycosides and things like that that were being used in 
that part of the world, not mm-hmm. the that we have access to here in the in the U.S. Sure, sure. And since we're talking about highly resistant organisms, you have also done some work on uh, phages. How's that going, and what do you see as the future for that? Yeah, phages is really cool. I sort of got involved in it kind of by accident because the the index case I, I was involved with was a lung transplant recipient who received mycobacteriophage for disseminated mycobacterium abscessus, and it was I, I happened to be on service at the time when the discussion of do we offer phage happened. And we have a local mycobacteriophage expert at Pitt. His name is Graham Hatful. And these data have since been published in a, in a case series. But since then, I sort of informally became a phage doctor here. We've treated, I think, five additional patients with phages for various kinds of infections. I have a good collaborator in the lab named, named Daria Ventine. She's an assistant professor and a, and a basic scientist. And she does genomics things in VRE, but has also taken an interest in phage. So she and I have collaborated on trying to A, treat patients with compassionate use phages and B, try to understand what's happening with phages. And I I mean, there's a lot to be learned, including something as basic as how to dose and how long to give and how frequently to give and where do the phages go and how do they affect the microbiome. And there's all sorts of other basic things that we, I think, take for granted with antibacterials. But we don't know anything about with phages because the f- because most phage cases have been done sort of as these compassionate use last resort things as opposed to the traditional rigorous phase one, two, three trials. There are trials. I think industry is now interested in this, as is FDA, as is NIH. So we're kind of, I think this is the right time if someone wants to be interested in phages. There's a lot of interest nationally and internationally in this and what and Daria and I are looking into opportunities to conduct some pilot trials in people with multidrug resistant organism infections to really understand a bit about how phages work so yeah it's an I think it's an exciting time to do bacteriophage therapy part of your multi-research empire it looks like monkeypox is on the way down thankfully but when it wasn't clear which way things were going to go, you were one of the pioneers in terms of getting some ideas out there as to how to study it systematically. And that's just another of the many examples of how uh, luck favors the prepared mind and that you're just, you see a problem, you go after it. Yeah. And the, and a lot of the preparation there, even though monkeypox ended up, I think, just dwindling and going away, last I checked, came from what we learned with COVID, sort of trying to maybe not repeat a lot of the slowness that was encountered in the response to COVID to COVID-19. I think COVID-19 was extremely sobering for all sorts of reasons, but I think we all need to be prepared for the next thing, the next pandemic that will in all likelihood affect immunodeficient people differently than it does the general population. I, I think having networks and and infrastructure and IOB protocols and all that already in place to address that as quickly as possible is the way to go, is is a big lesson I learned from SARS-CoV-2. Great. So yeah, tell us what you've done uh, for the last three years with COVID. Yeah, you know, COVID was obviously an unexpected thing that happened to to the world. And I think a lot of us did not expect to add COVID-19 research to the various research tasks that we're doing 
my interest with COVID-19, it really is an immuno, is immunodeficient people, specifically organ transplant and, and hematological cancer. And so since the early pandemic, we've kind of tried to define immune responses to vaccines in these patients as, as has the group at Hopkins as well. And, uh, and I think at this point, a major unmet need continues to be to protect immunodeficient people from COVID-19, be it by optimizing how to vaccinate them or passive immunoprophylaxis with monoclonal antibodies. Full disclosure, I also serve as a consultant for AstraZeneca, who makes the, the map Evusheld. And I also think that we need to optimize ways to treat these patients. I think a lot of immunodeficient people have very protracted SARS-CoV-2 that can be very difficult to treat. We've tried to do things like T-cell infusions and things like that and try to learn what happens to the virus after you give T-cells. But I think we have years to go before we really optimize the care of certain subgroups of immunodeficient people. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I and many others are pushing for clinical trials, randomized or otherwise, to figure out how to best meet their needs, because I think that that this is not a problem that's going to go away. Well, in our in our final minutes, by the time this goes on the air, we will know if the U.S. advanced to the next round of the World Cup. Do you have a uh, a favorite as to uh, who uh, you hope or uh, expect to uh, win the Cup final? I have no interest in the World Cup. I'm sorry to say. Wow. <laughs> Listen, it was really big in Lebanon. I always used to feign interest. I think when I was a kid, I we were the household was always a fan of Brazil. Brazil or Germany were the favorites in the household. It's just it's just not my thing. Not your thing. All right. Well, then then it's Steelers all the way for you. Uh, <laughs> great talking to you. Before they uh, shut us out, the Zoom people, I really appreciate that the people that are listening, Gadi Haidar, he's not just a rising star. He's already there, but you'll hear a lot from him, and maybe by the end we'll all end up working for him. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Take care.